typically we would take time right now for, for me to pray before we start. Um, and we will pray before we do. I need to go back and correct a mistake that I made, at least in the last sermon, if not the sermon before as well. Um, when we were discussing Colossians 2, and we were discussing the dynamic of the circumcision of Christ being one that is made without hands, I had reference circumcision in the flesh specifically being a circumcision that is made with the hands which was correct what i got incorrect was that i believe i cited philippians 3 which does discuss circumcision but it is not where paul explicitly shows that that circumcision is made with hands what i should have cited was from ephesians 2 11. paul says therefore remember that at one time you gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. That's the verse. That's what I should have been citing last week. So as as is the case from time to time, um, I get things wrong. Um, and I wanted to confess that, take this opportunity to repent and, and correct it. Um, so the concept was correct, but I did not cite it correctly. And I should have. So this is where I should have cited when I was discussing um the circumcision that is made without hands not being physical circumcision because of this passage, not Philippians 3. So please forgive me for that. I should have gotten that right. Um, and I'd like to take time both to pray for our time in the Word now, but also take this occasion for me to be able to confess that to the Lord. So Father, indeed, um, just as my brother Mark was saying, you use uh, your fatherly love and kindness to discipline us as sons. And I, I'm thankful for your kindness to uh, show me my error, and to give me an opportunity to, to confess that. And so, Father, I pray that you would forgive me for uh, mishandling your word in this way, and I pray that you would give us all grace, that we would relentlessly look to the Scriptures and not to any individual uh, in our midst as the standard. And I'm, I'm grateful that you show us that that's true, that that is what we need to do, that we need to look to your Son and that your Spirit does that work in us. And so we pray that as we come to your word now, that you would continue that work in us, that you would continue to shape and mold us into the image of your Son, who is alone our head and Lord and Savior. And we're thankful that we are given this grace by your Spirit's power. We have no strength in and of ourselves. We are, we are not merely insufficient. Father, in our sin, we are rebels. And yet it is through the grace and mercy that you've shown to us through Christ in his life and death and resurrection that we are adopted and made your children. So we gather to rejoice in that good news and pray that you would help us to increase um, in our knowledge of you, that we would indeed uh, grow up into our Savior and that we would build one another up in that and that you would continue to bless this body and bless your church throughout the world. As we discuss baptism and we consider disagreement with uh, different brothers who hold to to pedo baptism i remain thankful for those brothers i'm thankful for their faithfulness to love you their faithfulness to proclaim the gospel ends the earth and yet please give us grace now to be fully subject only to your word because your word is our standard of truth so give us grace give us strength in christ's name amen if i were to share with you all that my family would not be celebrating Christmas this year, and that I would not be getting presents for my boys. There's likely to be a common emotional reaction to that of some level of sadness. I don't think anyone gets excited hearing that someone's children are not getting Christmas presents. 
And yet, biblically speaking, if someone in our church felt convictionally in their conscience that it was not best for them and their family, if that dad decided it was not best for his family to celebrate Christmas and made that decision, he has every freedom to do so. Every freedom to choose what holidays to observe or to not observe. So why do we feel the sadness if he has the biblical freedom to do this? And the reason is we all have a propensity to hold on to our traditions with some level of strength. I do believe that that's part of why there is this divide on the issue of baptism. But what I want to convey is that this this dynamic of holding on to traditions perhaps more tightly than we ought to is not for them and not us. It's for anyone who has a propensity to sin. We all have a propensity to do this very thing of holding on to traditions instead of considering why do we do exactly what we do. There's a lot of things like that for all of us where we need to consider, when was the last time I evaluated biblically why we do that? If we were to make a list of those things that we haven't reconsidered, I think we would see that this is, this is a good warning for all of us. We need to truly believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. We need to bring every thought captive to Christ, and in so doing, follow our Lord and observe everything he has commanded us. There is a problem in evangelicalism today that has been called, and I think rightly called, theoretical inerrancy. And what that means is there are different teachers who will say they believe God's word is authoritative, and yet they will act as though that word needs to be supplanted with or uh, supplemented with analytical tools. Or we can make excuses over on this area of maybe we don't really have to obey because maybe that was cultural. They say they believe in inerrancy, and yet the practicality betrays it. This is rightly called theoretical inerrancy because true True belief in God's word is inerrant, should manifest in full subjection, flowing out of a faith in Christ alone. We all need to be careful with this. It certainly applies to the topic of baptism, but every area of life must be evaluated in this way. This is going to, Lord willing, and I think this will be the case, this will, Lord willing, be the last sermon we take to topically look at the, the issue of baptism. Lord willing. The main point, and we're just going to keep the main point. The main point of what we're considering with baptism is that baptism symbolizes the glorious reality of conversion. And so I I hope our, our time in the study has reflected that. We're looking at glorious things that God has done for us. We've, we've gotten to this point of considering, uh, the doctrine of baptism because of where we were in Deuteronomy doing what we typically do, expositing verse by verse through an entire book of the Bible. Deuteronomy 10.16, God is calling the Israelites to circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of their hearts. And we were looking at that verse and considering that that God is is using this instruction and using the verbiage of circumcision to convey a point. What the people ultimately need is to have their hearts changed. They need their hearts to be freed from that sinfulness that is in their flesh due to the fall. In addition to what needs to happen to them, the sign of circumcision is showing who is the only one who's going to be able to do it. Circumcision, I've been trying to argue from the scriptures, 
is a foreshadowing of the one seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, who is going to fulfill all righteousness and then impute that righteousness to his people and change their hearts for them. Because as we looked at Deuteronomy 10, there's no instruction manual on how they can do this because they cannot. Deuteronomy 30, as we go forward, will show them who can. It is God himself. It is God himself incarnate in Jesus Christ. We've looked at Romans 2 and Colossians 2 to convey the point that circumcision is explicitly shown to have its terminus, its fulfillment in heart circumcision, just as we were considering from Moses himself. That is done, as we saw in Romans 2, by the Spirit. And what we've been considering is that it is through that reception of the living waters from Christ, taking in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who converts us, who circumcises our heart, who gives us faith, it is that baptism in the Spirit that water baptism is ultimately to be reflected of. So the fulfillment of circumcision is not baptism. The fulfillment of circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. And it is baptism in the Spirit that is actually the foundation for water baptism. We've seen, starting in Matthew 3 and then going into Acts, and, and what we've been trying to, to show as being the consistent teaching in the New Testament is that baptism, whether it's John the Baptist's baptism or Jesus' baptism, it requires repentance throughout, beginning to end in the New Testament. We see that the dynamic that's laid out in Matthew 3 and in John's teaching is that Jesus' baptism is specifically greater than his because it is spirit baptism. He is going to baptize his followers in the Holy Spirit. And so similar to John's, it does require repentance, but it's greater than John's in that it is a baptism in the Spirit, and specifically in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we discussed that that's for disciples, those who have had their hearts changed, those who are submitting to the name of Jesus Christ, coming under his headship, and those who have received that Holy Spirit, whose also name they are being baptized into. Last week, as we were going through the book of Acts, we were considering how Acts is meant to be a second volume to the book of Luke. We need to understand those two books together to understand them properly. And we were seeing that Luke is is showing that Jesus is taught that family is being redefined around Jesus Christ. We looked at a few passages. One of them is Luke 18, verse 29. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Luke has shown the readers of Luke and Acts that family is to be understood around Jesus in his household, not our household. He talks about losing children, but you're gaining children in the household of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And indeed, as we are considering the book of Acts, we see that Christ has ascended, going on the clouds of heaven, as the fulfillment of Daniel 7. The Son of Man who has received the kingdom. That is really helpful, uh, the, that hymn, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. I don't know if you caught it while we were singing through it's making a parallel between him as the better son of man and as the true and better Adam. And that's exactly right. Christ came and defeated the serpent. He ascends, having won that victory, receiving the kingdom. And what we're seeing in the book of Acts is that he, in intimate union with his bride by the Spirit, is producing children for God. This is what Adam and Eve should have done. He's doing that through his bride. That's where you see, we were discussing this quickly, but in Acts 6 and in Acts 12, it is the word of God that is increasing and multiplying. That's a pull from Genesis 1 about how Adam was supposed to be fruitful and multiply. Jesus is doing that. He is 
making those children in his household through faith in the word of God, that gospel message of what he's done in his life and death and resurrection. So what we're considering here is that Luke is showing us what I've tried to exposit from the, the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, all the way into the New Testament, which is that the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ, which means the one who possesses the land promises and the one who possesses the genealogy promises is Jesus. Both of those find their fulfillment in Jesus. So to cap off what we've been discussing from the book of Acts, let's go over to Acts 22. And what we're going to discuss in Acts 22, just, just to fill out our time in the book of Acts, is we're going to discuss this idea of baptismal regeneration. I've spent a lot of our time discussing why we aren't necessarily Presbyterian. This is actually going to be something we would agree with Presbyterians on. Our good Reformed Presbyterian brothers do not believe in baptismal regeneration. They are with us in this discussion. So this is something that we would have uh, commonality regarding. So, Acts 22.16 is the verse we're going to look at here. It says, and now, why do you wait? This is Paul discussing his conversion. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And so this verse has been used to put forward an idea of baptismal regeneration. And indeed, many, many individuals throughout church history have believed in the idea of baptismal regeneration. It says, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Now that, you, you can see where they might construe this idea. I want to I point out an important detail here, right in the context. I hope with every point I'm making, I'm showing you right from the context of what is said, how we should understand these verses. So it said, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Calling on his name. That seems to be the main verb in this verse. Calling on his name. I want to consider another uh, passage that's oftentimes used to, to propagate the idea of baptismal regeneration. I'm going to try to explain the importance of that calling on his name. So this is from 1 Peter 3. So listen to this and see, see how it sounds similar. 1 Peter 3.21 says, Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into, into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. This, this is a, a verse that you could see why it might be misconstrued to say that perhaps baptism does lead to regeneration. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, speaking of the flesh, now saves you. That, that's, a, that's a strong statement. This is where, again, context is important. He says it's not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Both of those verses that are, you know, they're strong statements. Both of them, though, talk about this idea of a pub public proclamation, an appeal, a calling on the name of the Lord. This, is, this I think, explains why the strong language is being used. Consider with me Romans 10. This is starting in verse 14. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And look how Paul connects that idea. How then will they call on him 
in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom of, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Calling on the name of the Lord is the public proclamation of the fact that you have faith. That appeal that Peter was talking about is the result of faith. So what baptism is, it is meant to be part of your conversion, but it is meant to be you telling the world that your faith is in Jesus Christ and that you have just been born again through that faith in him. Calling on him is an essential outgrowth of the faith that alone saves every believer. So to, to kind of illustrate, um, we were talking about this yesterday. Jesus tells Lazarus to come forth. How, how do the people know that Lazarus has been raised from the dead unless he actually walks out? He could have been raised from the dead and just hung out in the tomb, but that's not the point. The point is that he that Jesus Christ has done this resurrection, regenerative work in him. Baptism functions in a similar way. It is how we show that we have been born again and that we declare our faith, that we are calling on his name for salvation. And it is, it is important. It's essential. I don't want to address baptismal regeneration in such a way as to say baptism is not important. It's just about faith. Baptism is really important. These verses are telling us baptism is very important. If we do not publicly testify to our faith in Christ, we are denying him and are ashamed of him. And Jesus tells us what the result of that will be, doesn't he? He will deny us. He will be ashamed of us. If we have believed in Jesus, we must go public with that faith. And that's exactly the point I think that's being laid out in Acts 22 and in 1 Peter 3. If we will not follow Jesus in obedience and be baptized, we have to consider whether we are in that James 2 category, those who say they have faith but have no works to accompany that faith, thus showing that whatever their faith is, it's not genuine, living, saving faith. Baptism is meant to be a testimony of God's work in someone's life to make them a new creation. If they will not go under the waters and come out and show that they've been raised to walk in newness of life by identifying with Christ in his death, is there, is there truly newness of life? Baptism is important. It is part of, it's meant to be, part of our conversion experience. It proclaims that we have faith in Christ. And so here's, here's the, the tension that I think we have to maintain. Baptism is meant to be part of your conversion an essential part of your conversion, and yet it is not the means by which you're converted. The scriptures are clear. We are saved by faith alone. But that has to be maintained. It is essential, and yet it is still not the means by which we're saved. The power is not the, in the baptismal waters themselves. The power is in the living waters of the Holy Spirit. We've covered a lot of ground, and yet... We've covered a lot of grounds, and we haven't at the same time. I've clearly not been exhaustive on this topic. Um, I, I think I likened what we're doing to kind of a starter kit. 
and obviously there's a lot to consider here. Um, so I, I want us to continue to, to have these conversations um, and to continue to consider these glorious realities. What I want to do now is consider some aspects from church history, um, which is kind of for us, because even as we've been doing a topical sermon series, I've been trying to focus us, focus us on significant exposition of entire passages of Scripture. So I want us to consider some things from church history, because we can be helped from church history. Um, and then I'm going to have us return to the Old Testament prophets at the end of this discussion. And um, what I'm going to have to say about church history is rather short, but if you wanted an extended uh, consideration of baptism and church history, there's different books you can look into. I really like listening to uh, James White talk about this. He, he's a good speaker, and he really does a good job speaking about church history, and he's got, I think, at least two sermons specifically about baptism within the context of church history that are available online, and I can get those to you if, you, if you'd like to look at them. Um, but a quick note about church history. Like I was mentioning, there's help to be had uh, in church history and in studying church history. There's information for us to learn. There's warnings for us to receive. We can see the patterns with which Satan has attacked the church throughout church history. And yet the best that church history, the best that church history has to offer us is still not on the standard of Scripture. We believe in sola scriptura. We can get help from church history, but it is not our standard. And to kind of illustrate this, the early church, you look at the earliest church documents, I think it's rather clear they believed in believer's baptism by immersion. But that clearly can't be the end of the discussion. Because like we've been talking about with baptismal regeneration, that was present in the early church as well. So we have to be careful here, don't we? They started to see that there's grace present when there's baptism, and they conveyed that that grace must be present in the act of passing through the waters rather than the spirit that's present in the believer. That's a problem. That's not what the scriptures teach. And it's I don't I don't say this like in a looking down my nose at them sort of way. Um, one of the things James White points out, I don't remember the exact statistic, but it's just devastating. The problem that the early church had with infant mortality that we just, by God's grace, don't deal with in the same way today, I think it was like you would have to have 10 live births just to get one of your children to adulthood. I get why they wanted an answer for how they could convey grace to a baby that was likely to die. I get it. That's a hard situation that those, that those brothers had to deal with. So I don't agree with them on their conclusions about baptismal regeneration, but I have an immense level of sympathy for why this was hard for them. You see then that the idea of baptism conveying grace leads to this practice where baptism was applied, essentially whenever, was, whenever someone was likely to die, because the early church thought your baptism would apply to cleansing you of sins that you committed previously, but not afterwards. And James White talks about how this dynamic uh, plays itself out in Constantine's life, where he's not baptized until his death. So this is where you can see there were exceptions given for where sprinkling might be used in, in unique cases, but then with baptism being used essentially as a last-ditch effort at someone's death, you see where sprinkling becomes more of a norm rather than an exception. Now we're going to jump forward quite a bit in church history and discuss the concept of 
the covenant of grace. And I'm going to say up front that when it comes to the idea of the covenant of grace, there's much that I affirm with the idea. A ton that I affirm with the idea. I mean, just looking at the term, God makes and keeps covenant. He sure does. Has he always saved by grace alone? He sure has. There's a lot to agree with here. I, I want to look quickly. Um, I'm going to read a section from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And I, um, there's an article on the Orthodox Presbyterian Church's website that I, I thought was helpful in clarifying where exactly they stand on these issues that I'm going to be uh, reading from with this section and then a section in just a moment. But I'm going to read from the Westminster Shorter Catechism and then comment on it briefly. And it says here, God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the state of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. That's a beautiful statement. That is a very beautiful statement. And indeed, this statement actually could be held to by a Baptist given what it says in its brevity, and it's, it's just a short, succinct statement. This is really good. They're talking about God saves merely out of his good pleasure. Amen. From all eternity past. Amen. Elected someday everlasting life. Amen. This is, this is where I want us to be careful, though. This is a small step, but I think it leads to the divide that we've been discussing. It says that... God did enter into a covenant of grace from eternity past. Here's my issue with that. One, what God is doing in eternity past is not explicitly called a covenant, though I think it is a reasonable conclusion if someone does believe that it was a covenant. I understand if that's someone's conviction. That's fine. The caution I would give, though, is that one, it's not explicitly called a covenant. Two, this term, covenant of grace, is nowhere used in the Scripture. And third, I would offer up that the term itself, you don't see it explicitly used in church history until the 16th century. Um, Henrik Brolinger and Johannes Ecolampadius, these are some of the earliest uh, uh, instances where we see this term used. And all I'm trying to say here is that the fact that the term's not in the Bible and it's not until later in church history should give us pause. This is where we have to consider tradition and what we're holding on to with this idea and examine it against Scripture. And again, this is a discussion of brothers. I'm not trying to say that this means they are outside the faith. I, like if someone was saying, I believe the new covenant is a covenant of grace, I would say yes and amen. But agree. The, the issue I have here is that the what they're purporting about the covenant of grace goes beyond that. James White, again, does a good job discussing this. The covenant of grace idea is used to essentially take the parameters given in Genesis 17 about circumcision and to bridge those parameters right on over to New Testament baptism. And this is where that one step of calling this a covenant of grace that I don't think Scripture explicitly does then becomes another step into missing what Scripture does teach about the nature of the covenants and about baptism itself. James White also points out that this 
in his study of church history, because he's a professor of church history, um, he's pointing out that in his study, you don't see that explicit connection of circumcision to baptism via a covenant of grace. You don't see that in church history until Calvin. That's not how the early church formulated their understanding of infant baptism when you see it start coming up. So what a lot of Reformed Presbyterians today hold to is actually a rather more recent development in the context of church history. Again, I'm not trying to look down my nose at these reformers. They had a lot of difficulties in their own right. They are standing against the Church of Rome, which was a daunting task. And part of what they had to reckon with was when they turned to the local magistrates and the princes that were around them in Europe, those princes would maintain their tax registries to fund the government through infant baptism. You stop baptizing infants, you lose your tax registry, and then you don't even have the local government that you need to support you in your stand against Rome. That's a hard spot to be in for them. And in addition, the early Anabaptists, many of them were bad theologians, many of them were crazy. They didn't make it easy on the reformers to consider credo-baptism. So when I look at Calvin and these guys, it was not an easy issue to navigate given the circumstances they were living in. We have to have a level of sympathy for them, even as we disagree with them. Like I was saying, with this idea of the, the covenant of grace, there's a lot that is good. And to convey where the problem comes in, I'm going to read from a statement on the Orthodox Presbyterian, Orthodox Presbyterian Church's website about the covenant of grace. It reads, This one covenant of grace is administered in different ways during different periods in the Bible. It is important that we understand, however, that these are simply different methods of administering the same covenant of grace. The character of the covenant is not changed by these different methods of applying it. Now, there's a lot I agree with there in the sense of if they're, I think part of what they're trying to convey is that salvation has always been, throughout all of God's dealings with humanity, it's always been by grace alone. I'm with them there. The issue comes in that last part. The character of the covenant is not changed by these different methods of applying it. Part of the problem with that statement is, we'll get into this as we go into Ephesians 2, Paul's explicitly telling us that there's multiple covenants. The, the verbiage here is almost like there's just one covenant and then these different formulations of it. But that's, that doesn't match the language of Scripture. There are plural covenants. You see that, I believe, in Romans 9 as well. Plural covenants. And I think something is missed here. So what this does is it means we're going to take what's going on in Genesis 17 and the household application, and like we talked about, just move that straight over to baptism in the New Testament. And I don't think that's how we're meant to understand these plural covenants and how they, how they progress and find their fulfillment ultimately in Christ. What it does is it takes that progression that's leading us towards Christ in a greater proper understanding of how God has brought about the gospel and shown grace to humanity, and it flattens it. And uh, indeed, there was, <laughs> there was someone who calls themselves a covenant theologian who was discussing this. What, I, what I've been defending, just to put the label on it that people would put the label on, 
what I would hold to is called progressive covenantalism. Simply explained, it's the progression of the covenants to show what God is going to do and what ha God has done in Jesus Christ to bring about a new covenant that we enter into on the righteousness of Christ, not our own righteousness. And it, this covenant theologian was admitting that when you look at covenant theology, there's a lot of emphasis and focus on the church. And then he was saying that when it comes to dispensationalism, there's a lot of emphasis and focus on Israel. He admitted that the system that I've been trying to espouse is really focused on Christ. I feel, if I'm wrong on this issue, I'm, I'm glad to be in this area where the emphasis is, if I'm overemphasizing anything, if I'm overemphasizing Christ, I feel more comfortable giving an account for that. And I do think that part of the problem here is that this idea of the covenant of grace and how Presbyterians formulate it leads to a missing of that Christ-centered nature of what's in the old covenant and how it progresses into the new covenant. It misses that newness of the new covenant that's been accomplished through the work of Christ. We've been discussing how when it comes to Abraham and, and this, this sign of circumcision, indeed, Genesis 17 does say that this is supposed to be um, a sign for your generations. But it also says this is to be a sign in your flesh, an everlasting covenant in your flesh. That word is used by Adam to describe Eve as bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's a family term. Who's the fulfillment of that family dynamic for Abraham? It's Christ. He bears circumcision, presumably forever, in his resurrection body. His resur resurrection body bears the marks of his crucifixion. His body bears the marks of God's covenant faithfulness forever. It is an everlasting covenant in his body, in his flesh. And when we've discussed what uh, circumcision is symbolizing, it's foreshadowing the seed that's to come. We talked about how it's a sign for those who are priests or royalty, king priests. It's a sign of covenant love. Christ is the one who fulfills all that. He is the seed of the woman. He is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. He is the one who has faithfully loved the Father in full obedience, and he does Deuteronomy 10 by circumcising the hearts of his people and making them children for God, seeds of Abraham by faith in him. So what I'd like to do is see if what I've been proposing fits with what, we're dis with what is discussed in the Old Testament prophets, uh, specifically with Jeremiah 31. So this is, this is the most explicit text when it comes to understanding the New Covenant in the Old Testament. We've kind of looked at the beginning of the Bible. We've looked at the New Testament and the end of the Bible. If what I'm proposing is correct, it should stand up in the middle. So I want to test what I've been expositing and see if it stands. And I, I have to give credit here to another author, Peter Gentry. Um, he's a brilliant Old Testament scholar and... If I, I'll just throw in an anecdote. Um, he He's a man I admire. The first time I saw him, that I at least that I can remember, it was at this festival at Southern Seminary. And he's obviously well-known at Southern. That's where he used to teach. And um, a lot of the men there admired him. And he's at this festival, and he's wearing uh, khaki shorts, very grandpa-like khaki shorts, um, that were brown. He had black socks on and dress shoes with shorts. 
And he's not dressing to impress is what I saw. And he wasn't there to, to like, you can see other people, like, networking and this or that. What he was there doing, um, he was there with one of his grandchildren. And I, I'm not sure. I wonder if his grandchildren had been adopted. Um, he's not there to, to be schmoozed with. He's just there to be a grandpa. And I, I just, I appreciate this man on both a scholarly level, but he's a man who just wants to love God and love other people. And he's not, he's not done his work for, for fame. So I, I want to be able to look at the scriptures and hopefully in good faith expose them clearly. And I'm grateful for this man and how he's, he's helped me understand what it means to both understand the scriptures and then to apply them. So we're going to start in Jeremiah 31. And I'm going to start here in verse 27 and kind of get some context going into that. If you're looking at the ESV, there's a marker for the new covenant. I want to get some context going into that. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. And what I want to comment on here is that there was this dynamic. And you, if you want to, for the sake of time, I'm not going to have us go over there right now. But if you want to go back to Jeremiah 2, verses 4 through 8, uses that same word for fathers. It shows that in Old Testament Israel, their covenant with God was mediated by their fathers, by the prophets, the priests, the shepherds, or, or, and perhaps that's representative of their kings. And the problem is these, medi these mediators were not sufficient. These were not good mediators. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Their experience in the Old Covenant ended in exile because of these bad covenant heads that they had. They had bad mediators. And if you look at Jeremiah 2... Specifically, the problem was those mediators, instead of leading the people towards God, led them towards idols. So, why that's important to note is that when we come into this discussion of the New Covenant, it's presuming there needs to be a better mediator. The New Covenant is aimed at a, the, the arrival and activity and accomplishment of a, of a better mediator. So, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So here's the million-dollar question. God has said that this new covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's not like the old covenant. So the question is, how... What does it mean that this covenant is new and not like the Old Covenant? How is this unlike the Old Covenant? And so we're going to look at the context and see how it answers it. Verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God is talking about how their hearts are going to be changed. They're going to be changed because the law is going to be written on their hearts. That law that caused them to love the Lord their God and to love their neighbor as yourself. 
God's going to change their hearts so that they will do that. And that this is focused on heart circumcision, I think is made evident by the context. Jeremiah 9 had just talked about chapters before. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Same word for heart. This is the answer to that problem from Jeremiah 9. Circumcised hearts, a heart that is made covenantally loyal to the Lord their God. Verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. They're not going to have to tell anyone in this covenant to know the Lord. That word for know, that's the word that's used in Genesis 4 to talk about how Adam knew his wife. That's intimate covenant love. This is also the word for know that we read from Psalm 87. These Gentiles who were far off will come to know the Lord and be adopted into God's people. They will be declared as those who are from Jerusalem. Knowing the Lord here means that you have indeed experienced that heart of circumcision and are in intimate covenant union and fellowship with God. That's what that word know means, and it fits the context that we're seeing here. And verse 34 tells us how that's possible, because we, we talked about the problem. The people have not been faithful. They have not actually kept the covenant. They are covered in sins. So how does that get resolved? It says, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is going to happen through a perfect atoning sacrifice that covers all their sins. Hebrews, if you want to go back there at some point, that's what's going to go on to show. How is it that we experience this greater new covenant reality? Because there's a once-for-all sacrifice that has been offered. It's done. Those sins are gone. So what... Um, well, well if, if, you, there's, if you have footnotes, there's a ton of footnotes here. What we're seeing here in Jeremiah 31, this is not something that we are waiting for in the future. This is something that's arrived now. When you look at how the New Testament uses this passage, it's here. It's been accomplished in Christ. We're experiencing it. It's uh, The Hebrews 8 language that we read earlier is that it has been enacted. It is active now. And indeed, we see that it's enacted now because our hearts have been changed. How We are testimony to the fact that it's enacted now. We are living testimony because we have been changed by God's grace. He has circumcised our hearts. So what makes the new covenant a new covenant is the atonement that's been brought through Jesus Christ that is then applied to us through heart circumcision by the Spirit so that we know the Lord in intimate covenant fellowship. And it's because we have a better mediator. We have a better prophet, priest, and king. He's the reason when we look at that father's eating sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. We don't have to worry about that. Our head who gives us life 
is perfect, and we can rest in him. Uh, Jeremiah 32, if you'll turn over, I, I want to show that what I'm saying here from Jeremiah 31 is indeed what Jeremiah intended. And I want to look here at um, a, a, the, the next chapter and see how Jeremiah is coming back to this topic of a new covenant and commenting on it further. It says in Jeremiah 32, 36, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by a sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That verse 38, that's echoing what was said in verse 33 back in chapter 1. It says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We're seeing this idea revisited here. In Jeremiah 32. And what I want to comment on, which is going to be important as we go forward, the first instance you see of God declaring, I will be their God, or I will be your God, the first instance of that is Genesis 17. We've talked about how Genesis 17 is used to say how we should apply baptism to infants. Jeremiah is telling us something about Genesis 17. I want us to keep that in mind as we go forward. Verse 39, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. So we're looking here and we see, again, this genealogical idea being laid forward. And then what does it say about them? I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. The blessing is in all those children who learn to fear the Lord. The children are marked by a fear of the Lord. And you see this, um, this dynamic of fearing the Lord, knowing the Lord, surrounding the wisdom of following God, all in Proverbs 1. The question then is, who are the kids? Who are the children? So let's keep going. Verse 41, I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land with in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. So what we're seeing is that that blessing that's going to come upon them, that they're going to be changed in their hearts, that they might fear the Lord, is leading them to come home as God's children, to be in the land with God, to see him and to be with him. So what we're seeing here is that the new covenant is marked by a change in who they fear, their changed heart means that they fear the Lord and they never turn from him. And then this idea of Genesis 17 and genealogy that is hinted at in Jeremiah 32, I think is commented on next in Jeremiah 33. So in Jeremiah 33, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. 
It says that the branch, David's son, from verse 15, he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. Those words, justice and righteousness, they're used together in Genesis 18, 19 to talk about what the seed of Abraham is going to have to be that God would fulfill his promises to Abraham. We're waiting for a seed of Abraham who's going to fulfill righteousness and justice because we obviously can't. And that is the means by which God is going to bring blessing to his people. He's going to impute righteousness to them. It says in verse 16, and this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Christ comes as God incarnate, the true seed of Abraham, fulfilling justice and righteousness. And we indeed come into that new covenant and say the Lord is our righteousness because of him. Because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Verse 17, for thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to, bring, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. So what we're seeing here is God is saying that the fulfillment of these promises to Abraham is going to come through a son of David, this branch coming from David's line. That's where the covenant with David is really helpful for us understanding how we go from the old covenant to these greater new covenant realities. It's because our king gives us those blessings that we could never earn. He's the one who does that. So there's, there's a question here. Jesus is obviously the fulfillment of what was promised to David. What's the fulfillment of what's promised to the Levitical priests? And Hermeneutics 101, let's keep reading and we'll see. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the little priests, my ministers. What God's saying is that his covenant promises, both to David and to Levitical priests, is as sure as his covenant with creation. He's going to keep his covenant. How? It says in verse 22, As the host of heavens cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levitical priests who minister to me. That, that phrase there, the sands of the sea that cannot be measured, that's a callback to Genesis 22. And this is, this is really important. So if I've lost you, please come back here. What's really important here is that Jeremiah is telling us that God's fulfillment of the genealogical promises that were made to Abraham is found in Israel's king. Israel's king possesses the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, specifically the genealogical promises. And indeed, it makes sense why. We talked about how in Jeremiah 31, they have this problem of bad mediators, bad fathers. Christ comes in, in Psalm 110 terms. He comes as the king who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is the fulfillment of all those offices, the better prophet, priest, and king. He, as the head of the new humanity, gives his people greater blessings, gives them newness of life. We are his seed in his household. And the, and the language here shows us that this is the gospel for all peoples of the earth. It's for the sands of the sea that cannot be measured. Why the sea? The sea is where the Gentiles are. You see that language like in Isaiah 9, Galilee of the Gentiles or of the nations. Jesus is going to bring all people to know God. 
And this, this helps us to see how the Levitical priest's blessing is fulfilled as well. Because obviously in Romans 4 terms, everyone who puts their faith in Christ becomes a seed of Abraham, whether they're a Jew or whether they're a Gentile. Um, I'm sure at some point the, the study in Isaiah is going to get to Isaiah 56, which talks about those who are foreigners are going to minister to God. They're going to do the same word here that we see in Jeremiah 33. The priest who ministered to me, that ministry is going to be accomplished by foreigners. And Isaiah 66 goes on to talk about those from the nations coming and becoming Levitical priests. And we see that with what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. We who are in the church of Jesus Christ are a kingdom of priests. So all I'm trying to convey here is the newness of the new covenant means a change of heart and it's accomplished by Israel's king, the son of David. And so all of God's promises find their yes and amen in 2 Corinthians 1 terms. All of them, whether it's the land promises or the genealogy promises, they find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And I think this is where our Pado-Baptist brothers misunderstand both Genesis 17 and circumcision and then therefore misunderstand baptism as a result of it. Am I allowed to ask you a question in the middle of a sermon? Should I pause on the ecclesiology topic for later? Okay. We have lunch over there. I'm trying to be considerate of that fact. So I'm going to stop now. We can maybe discuss this in uh, Sunday school or something at some, some other point. I'd really like to get back to Deuteronomy. I think we've sufficiently covered this topic. Um, I will say, I don't. this is, this is good stuff to, to think about, and it takes time. I'm glad for there to be continued conversations about this. I don't obviously I don't feel like I've covered everything. I'm literally cutting my sermon short. Um, but what what I do want to close to encourage us with is that we're studying baptism and there's all kinds of issues that that come from it. And it seems like every single one of them is tremendously significant. And and I want to encourage us to pursue what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I want to encourage us to do that because these things are worth studying. They are worth considering. But I also want to give encouragement because if it, it can be really easy to look at all these issues and to get overwhelmed and be discouraged. And I just want to remind us that it is a grace of God to be a sapling that's growing. That's only possible by God's grace in our lives. The problem is not that we're not a giant tree immediately. There's things we've learned over the last few years in evangelicalism and there's a, and one of the things is that there can be those who seem to be giant trees or we're starting to see that there's rot and deadness inside of those trees that's not a good place to be it's a good place to be to be someone who truly wants to know their lord and is growing even if you are a sapling that's god's grace and i, and I don't say that to be cute or patronizing that's that's true for every single one of us even for christ he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew. Our Savior is the example of this. And what we see with Christ is that in his growing, he did what we, what we opened with, which is that he surrendered everything to the Father's will, all the way to obeying the call to die on a cross 
to save his people from their sins. And so similarly, we need to, to pray that God would grow us and develop us and to be diligent students. And as we are diligent students and God is growing us, we must not withhold anything from our Lord. Certainly, as we see with Christ, the Christian life is not easy. It's oftentimes hard. But as our baptism reminds us, though we die, we are raised to newness of life. That's our end. So as we were talking about earlier, these hard things, all of these challenges, they are small in comparison with our God. They're nothing in comparison with our God. And for us, they are simply preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all compare. And we can rejoice in that.